welcome to Clothes Horse, the podcast that has way too much anxiety about pantyhose. Although I've definitely talked and thought about pantyhose uh, during this dress code series way more than I have in years. But one memory it unlocked for me is that when I was a kid, you know, my mom was an accountant. So she, or she was eventually an accountant, I should say. She went to college when I was in elementary school. Um, and she she had to wear a lot of pantyhose, tights, trouser socks. She would always give them to me when they were worn out. And I would cut them up and make them into Barbie dresses um, or other things like Barbie mattresses, you name it. Anyway, talking about dress codes has unlocked that memory of all the, at least in my opinion, pretty styling Barbie outfits I made as a kid. I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 166, part two of now three in a series about dress codes and uniforms with special guests, of course, Maggie and Ruby. In this segment, we'll focus on professionalism and what that does or does not mean regarding dress codes. We will do a deep dive into the different categories of professional dress. I learned so much from this that I did not know before. And we will get to the bottom of why these dress codes are enforced in the first place, despite the language within these policies being very subjective and therefore unmeasurable. In fact, further understanding the meaning of the word subjective gives you a hint into why these dress codes might be problematic and often very confusing. Subjective means based on or influenced by personal feelings, tastes, or opinions. Yeah, seems like a great basis for a bunch of rules about what you can and cannot wear, right? (laughs) In this episode, we'll also include thoughts and stories from Jenny, Carla, and Pat. Before we jump into this very long conversation, yes, this is another mega-sized episode, I have a big announcement, which, to be fair, you may have caught on my Instagram stories this week, or you may not have. Either way, feign surprise. (laughs) I quit my job. This is a very, very big and scary move for me because I am obviously a person who doesn't have much of a financial safety net to fall back on. I worry about all of this all the time. But Dustin has been reassuring me every, I don't know, like 15 minutes or so that everything will be fine. My making the very scary decision to leave my job, it didn't just happen in a vacuum. And it's been a long time coming. In fact, I almost left six months ago, but I was convinced to stay longer. I'm still processing everything that has happened this year, and hopefully someday I will feel more able to talk about it in depth. I'm just not there yet. But I'll say this, while I love my immediate team at work, I'm going to miss working with them, and I have very passionate feelings for what we have been trying to accomplish, the culture of fear and humiliation within our larger parent company was taking a major toll on my mental and physical health. I don't deal well with being screamed at. We've talked about this here on the pod before. We've definitely talked about it on the department. Uh, I don't like to be talked over or humiliated in front of others. There was an awful lot of all of that. And this culture caused other people to behave a little nefariously or at the very least not collaboratively 
because they were so afraid of humiliation and they desperately wanted some positive feedback. I am sure this situation will sound very familiar to many of you, which is very unfortunate. (laughs) Eventually, I reached a point where I was sad to wake up every morning. I basically counted down the hours until I could go to sleep again. Forget about the Sunday scaries. I was having the like every day of the week scaries (laughs) because I was going to have to get up and do it all again. I was engaging in physical self-harm that I was trying to hide from everyone in my life, which meant wearing long sleeves when it was far too warm outside to do so. I literally felt sick. My self-esteem was so shot that I actually thought about quitting Clothes Horse because I felt that I had nothing to offer the world. And my brain was just so consumed by the stress of this job. Justin and I began having conversations about next steps in our life, specifically focused on my leaving my job. And while we planned for it to be a few months off, there was a proverbial straw that broke the camel's back, and I decided that I was done now. I'm really lucky to have an incredible partner in Dustin who was actually happy that I made the decision. It's amazing. Uh, And you know what? I'm really proud of myself because older versions of me stuck around in harmful situations for way too long. I really believe that my work here on Close Horse and the support of the community around it really empowered me to take care of myself in a way I never have before. So thank you. Why am I telling you all this? Well, for one, I plan on pursuing consulting, Close Horse, and Small Biz Big Pick full-time. That means I have openings for consulting and mentorship for small businesses. And if you have questions about that, want to learn more, you can drop me an email at amanda at closehorse.world. Dustin and I are massively rebuilding the Close Horse website in the next few weeks in honor of the three-year anniversary of Close Horse. And there will be more information about this kind of stuff there as well. Next, now is a great time to support my work. If 10% of my Instagram followers became patrons for $3 a month, I would be okay financially. I would be able to do even more stuff with Clothes Horse, actually. And now that I will have more time, I'll be able to resume making Patreon-exclusive content. I can't wait. I'm so excited. I have so many ideas. And I'll be able to work with more guests, host more Zoom info sessions, hangout kind of situations. And I'm also hoping to do some live shows later this year. If you own a small business, you could also consider taking out an ad on Close Horse. Once again, just drop me an email there and we can figure out the details. You could also pay me to speak at your library, your creative reuse center, your sustainability group, etc. I just did a great presentation for a library last Thursday and I was reminded of how much I love connecting with new people. It's like one of the greatest joys in life. To be honest, I'm really excited to work for myself and make more stuff happen. I was turning down a lot of opportunities related to close horse and working with small businesses because I was just working all the damn time at my job, and this job was just making me increasingly sadder. This is actually the first time in a long time that I have felt super excited. It's such a great feeling. (laughs) Anyway, this is a long episode. There's a lot to talk about, so I think... You know, we'll talk about this many more times in the future, I'm sure. But let's jump in to my conversation with Ruby and Maggie. Let's talk about a word that comes up 
all the time when we talk about dress codes, especially work dress codes, and that is the term professionalism. In the last episode, we talked a lot about words that were really subjective. Uh, Maggie shared all kinds of words like that that are used in school and work dress codes that really are not measurable and really are more of an opinion. And I wonder, because everything I was reading about corporate dress code would drop the word professional, professionalism over and over again. And I wondered, like, is this one of those words or is there something about the meaning that I'm not really getting? Well, according to Miriam Webster, a source cited in so many school reports over the years, uh, professionalism is the conduct, aims, or qualities that characterize or mark a profession or a professional person. Now, why is the word professional allowed to be used in a definition for professionalism? I don't know. It seems like one of those things that you would get in trouble for in a school report, right? It does. It does. It does. Dig deeper. Dig deeper. There's got to be more there. Right. But then when I looked at professional, it was just like, oh, a person who does a profession. And I was like, okay, so were we just... Is this like like just a weird cycle? I'm going to be in with these words where one's going to take me back to the other over and over again. And, you know, ultimately, I looked at a bunch of different sources and it was the same story, which leads me to believe that professionalism for all of the hype around it really isn't, it doesn't have a clear definition, right? Mm -hmm. And I guess that doesn't really surprise me when we think about all of the other words that Maggie cited last week that are part of dress codes, right? Like appropriate, uh, distracting, proper, clean, neat. You know, those things are in the eye of the beholder for certain. And it seems as if professionalism is the same way. But as we talk about professionalism, I want to remind everybody of something we talked about last week. This came from Ruby and her excellent reporting on the history of dress codes. She said, there are four elements in every outfit basically and this applies to dress codes as well status power sex or really for our purposes gender and personality and i think when you start to consider those words when we talk about professionalism you start to see what's really happening here now the definition i read of professionalism would imply perhaps that professionalism is based on behavior like how you carry yourself, right? How you communicate with others, how you treat others, uh, the quality of your work, which you would think would be probably the most important part of professionalism would be being knowledgeable and skilled at your job and working hard, right? Uh, and then ethics and values, you would also think would be a big part of professionalism, you know, like sticking to your deals, not treating partners poorly, um, you know, working together collaboratively, that kind of thing. But that's not really what we're talking about when we talk about dress codes and them being sort of a reflection of professionalism. I just wanted to, to piggyback off of what you were saying about um, the definition of professionalism and how it's always kind of this like moving target, right? I right. think it's one of those words that's used especially within dress codes to like assert power, right? Which yes. is one of the like power and status really yes. come into play, I think, um, with, with professionalism in particular and also sex and gender, but we're going to probably talk about that this whole episode. <laughs> um, but it's like people yep. with status and power enforcing 
expectations on people with less power and less status. I mean, status comes up time and time again in all the reading I did about dress codes. And we're going to, in a few, share Indeed's Guide to Business Attire, where status is so intensely implied. That's like, that's what this is really all about. Definitely. So the the quote that I pulled um, from Dress Codes by Richard Thompson Ford, um, it has to do with uh, women in the workplace specifically. Um, And he talks about, you know, when we're talking about like patriarchy and dominance of, um, you know, like the masculine over the feminine and how that plays out in our culture, um, he actually ties it back to... uh, this concept of Eve and original sin, which is really <laughs> kind of interesting. Um, mm. But I guess if you think about like school dress codes and how that mm. gets enforced, especially in like religious schools, um, that kind of makes sense. You know, that like it'd be, it's like, it's always the woman's fault. Um, <laughs> sort of this like through line, right? <laughs> that, uh, that we have inherited along with patriarchy, which really sucks. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so this, this one um, quote that I wanted to share. Um, he titles it fashion victims and it's kind of this conclusion to a chapter that's all about uh women in the workplace and specifically women in the law professions Mm. um and he says the ancient imperative to separate virtuous from fallen women still defines today's dress codes and many use it to justify obsessive obsessive control over women's bodies Mm. while some dress codes punish women um like Darlene Jesperson and those who reject high heels for refusing sexual objectification and decorativeness, which is another anecdote uh, shared previously in the chapter. Um, Equally potent rules and expectations demand feminine modesty. Modesty may seem the opposite of, or even an antidote to sexual objectification and decorativeness. But in fact, both dress codes require women to cater to the desires of men. While the sexualized decorative woman must make herself pleasing to the eye, the modest woman is obliged to avoid drawing attention to herself. The demands of decorativeness and modesty are opposite sides of a single patriarchal coin, which the modern woman must balance on its edge. I thought that just like speaks so <laughs> concisely to this struggle that we've been voicing so much in, in the previous episode. And I'm sure we're going to dive a lot deeper in <laughs> yeah, to this I- episode as well, especially with the stories that, uh, that listeners shared. Definitely. I mean, uh, before we started recording, Maggie and I were recounting for Ruby all of the uh, comments and stories we received on Instagram today about dress codes. And just the recurring theme was control, especially around women's bodies. Yeah. And sometimes to just such an egregious level, I'm, I'm shocked. I mean, I'm not shocked, but I just was like, this is so fundamentally unethical. The way these women were being treated at work or in school as girls that how could that be professional you know know. it's It's interesting interesting as you all are sharing this i'm thinking about that phrase like the two two most impolite or probably unprofessional topics of conversation that you can you know introduce into a group of people or religion and politics and (laughs) both of those things are something that we're going to touch on today but like as Ruby was reading that quote, I was taking notes like virtuous sticks out as like a red flag type of word for yeah. me versus fallen, fallen <laughs> as in fallen from grace. Like, yep. um, of course, modesty was definitely something that stuck out to me, too. And like the the idea of 
virtuosity and modesty kind of coming from, um, I mean, frankly, like white supremacist, colonialist, like hyper-religious extremist, you know, background, um, Mm-hmm. It all it all tracks. Um, doesn't mean it makes sense or it's it's right, but I'm like, oh, uh, you know, just makes it even more cringe. Oof, yeah, it really, really does. It is. Uh, I was thinking about the other night, like after our, we recorded our other conversation, I was thinking about how when I was a kid, I thought that when I grew up, I would finally get to like really own own my life. Right. Like what I did, what I wore, where I spent my time, when I ate, when I slept, that kind of thing. And something that has constantly perhaps, I don't know, disappointed me as an adult is that like that freedom's not always there. In fact, it's frequently not there, depending on where you live, how much money you have, the other circumstances surrounding your life, where you work. Uh, like there isn't, there isn't freedom to be who you are most of the time. And sorry if you're a teenager listening to this and you thought things were going to get better. I don't know if they will. Um, But, you know, like I think when we talk about dress codes as adults, you start to see that, no, you don't get to wear what you want to work necessarily or to be super comfortable. And even I, you know, I've worked in fashion my whole career. So ostensibly I could wear whatever I wanted to work anytime. But really, that wasn't true. You know, I had to dress for a role every day. Um, not what I was feeling like wearing that day or what was most comfortable to me, like physically or like emotionally. And I think I didn't even have to wear pantyhose or any of these other just like really archaic policies around clothing. I could probably have shown my my bra strap if I wanted to. I, apparently that is like one of the worst things you can do in school based on all the Instagram chatter today. <laughs> so I... I was like, what is business attire? Because I'm going to be level. Like, I have not had a job where I've had to adhere to, like, a business attire wardrobe per se. I mean, there were obviously, like I said, unspoken codes in place for what I should or should not wear to work. But it wasn't, like, spelled out in, like, a manual. Um, Except for, you know, when I was working, like, customer service-facing jobs. And so I came across this Indeed Guide to Business Attire, and it was actually uh, really illuminating for me. (laughs) Um, And I have a lot of questions. And I noticed someone went in here and underlined some of the words in the doc, and I'm just assuming it was Maggie. Um, (laughs) But they were the exact questions I was having, so I can't wait to talk about these. Um, so I guess the first thing is, I guess I sort of knew this, but didn't know this, that there are different kinds of business attire. I don't know if either of you knew this. There were, there was one in here specifically that I had never heard of before. Totally. Um, but the one I have heard is casual business attire. And the quote from mm-hmm. Indeed is, you might wear casual clothing if you work in an informal office where others wear things like t-shirts, jeans, and Here's the one that really blew yep. people's minds. Open-toed <laughs> shoes. You should avoid wearing casual dress with clients and in interviews, even the, if the office is casual overall, which I thought was really interesting because I don't know about either of you, mm-hmm. but I have, when I have gone in for job interviews at different companies, there has been in the, you know, invite for the mm. okay, wear a casual office, dress comfortably, like that kind of thing. Mm, right. Um, or so like garments with prints versus solids and like what prints? Like is it a small print or a large yes. print? Mm, yeah. We 
specifically one of the jobs I had, like that definitely was something that they said to potential uh, candidates. And if you wanted to interview them and they were wearing like a suit, it was like, no, it's not going to work out. Not not a cultural fit. And so indeed sort of setting some people up possibly to be rejected just on the basis of being dressed up too much. According to Indeed, casual dress includes items like T-shirts, button-down shirts, which I thought was interesting because to me, and I see that you underlined this, Maggie, to me, that's like more dressed up. Uh, Blouses and sweaters on top. Bottoms might include jeans, khakis. This is not going to be the first time we talk about khakis today. Linen pants, cropped pants, or shorts. Casual shoes can include sneakers, loafers, low heels, or sandals. No flip-flops on there, I guess. That would be, like, too far over the line. So if any of you had a business casual job. <laughs> I, I, I mean, yes, technically. Yes. <laughs> Does it sound a little dressier to you? I don't know. <laughs> well, here's, here's where it got really interesting. Because if you okay. look on paper what the parameters are and, like, the guidelines and expectations of the dress code, And then you look around the physical office environment, like things did not always add up. Um, As soon as you said flip flops, I was like, oh, I'm about to pop up out of my chair because that was like one of my biggest frustrations with the quote unquote business casual environment in which I worked. Like I really made a concerted effort to embody that quote unquote professional appearance, right? Like, Mm -hmm. um, really sticking to the guidance in terms of what business casual is usually defined as. However, I had colleagues, some of whom were in leadership and middle management positions who were like, literally, I mean, wearing sweatpants and flip flops and tank tops. And I never understood how that was acceptable but like <laughs> if if a tiny little peak of my tattoo showed over top of my button up blouse or whatever you know i would get like raised eyebrows around me um i don't know it yeah i think enforcement and compliance are like maybe another issue you know they establish these standards and everyone's expected to adhere to them um but i think the enforcement piece and like compliance might be also subjective, potentially discriminatory. Um, If I thought a little bit deeper, I could probably make that connection even more clear with examples. Yeah. I I mean, what you just said, Maggie, is exactly what I was thinking, that when or if it is enforced, it is there is probably an ulterior motive involved. Um, I noticed a recurring theme as people were talking on Instagram today about dress codes is it was sort of like, you might not be targeted for dress code violation in school or at work if people liked you or there was nothing about you that they found like that they didn't have any subconscious biases towards. Right. But if you were, you know, taller or not white or not feminine or, you know, on, on, on. Right. You might be targeted. Um, there were a lot of people saying, like, specifically, they felt in in high school that uh, smaller, more petite girls were not targeted for dress code violations, but girls who were taller, bigger, had larger breasts, they were always targeted for it. And so it seems like if you're going to be policing people on dress code, uh, it's really easy to get all of your implicit bias wrapped up in it. 
Ruby, have you ever had a dress, like a dress code situation like this? Like, what do you wear to work now? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so my job now, I work at a fabrication shop, so I'm wearing clothes that I can get dirty like every day. So I kind of go to work in like t-shirts and yoga pants a lot of the time. Um, but before this, um, I actually had, uh, probably eight, eight year career in college admissions, um, alongside my like freelance work in fashion. And that had a somewhat strict dress code. And actually the last school that I worked for before the pandemic, um, me and a coworker were tasked with creating the dress code for our office. Um, and it's so funny that you quoted this article because I'm like rereading it now. And I'm like, I think this is the exact article that we looked at to like <laughs> determine what we should put in this dress code um because i'm remembering like this funny like breakdown of like the like casual business and like smart casual and like <laughs> business professional and like these different like levels or like tiers um and it's funny because i think that we determined that our our office was somewhere between like smart casual and business casual interesting, um, interesting. yeah but we we definitely like had to put a lot of this um into practice and it's interesting too because i think you know for a lot of people like it is kind of you know it was a very public facing job you have people coming in to like tour the campus and meet with an admissions counselor so you're constantly meeting with families um and you do have to make a good impression like that kind of is a part of the job um and so uh yeah it's interesting like a lot of us um especially the counselors and people that had like this more outward facing role um a lot of us would like come to work in sneakers but we would keep like a pair of heels or like nice loafers like under our desk and we would keep a blazer usually like I would keep a blazer like hanging on the back of my door and it was like if you know if suddenly you were called into like a meeting with the dean or something you would just like swap out your shoes and throw the blazer on whatever you were wearing to try to like dress it up um which is funny because I like have not worn blazers since that job <laughs> um but at the, but at that time I think I had like four or five that I would kind right. of like just kind of always have one at the office um and I didn't wear it to work and I didn't wear it home it just sort of lived at the office until it was dirty and then I took it home and swapped <laughs> it with another one um but yeah I mean it, it does kind of feel like a costume that you're putting on like when you get to work like you put on your heels or you put on your nicer shoes totally um, and then maybe you get out of the meeting and you're just going to be like doing emails for the rest of the day so you you just like put your slides back on or whatever shoes you came to work in. <laughs> um, yeah, I also I also have a couple um, little anecdotes about interviews. Um, maybe Ooh. we should get to that later, though. Okay, yeah. I actually did interview some people, and yeah. Okay, let's put a pin in that because I definitely want to hear okay. about that. Because I <laughs> I thought it was like I said I thought like Indeed was maybe like I don't know like misleading people a little bit here about what they should wear for interviews because there was like a whole section about that as well. Mm. Um, and I was like I don't know. I mean, for many jobs this would be coming in too hot, if you will, uh, yeah. <laughs> in terms of formality. So the next one which I had never heard of is smart casual. It seriously sounds like something someone's grandma would have said in like the 1960s. Um, <laughs> according to indeed smart casual is another form of casual business attire. And here's where it gets so subjective with a stylish twist. Oh. <laughs> uh, smart casual might include items like blazers, sports jackets, ties, button down shirts. Once again, this could be so confusing for a lot of people. Yeah. Collared shirts, dresses, sweaters, trousers, khakis, again, khakis, 
Skirts, blouses, heels, flats, dress shoes, clean sneakers, like what? Jewelry, belts, and scarves. So you can wear more accessories, I guess, with smart cash. <laughs> you casual. can wear belts. <laughs> you can wear belts, but before, no belts, no belts, no, no scarves. Belts. <laughs> um, the clean sneakers thing gives me, like, anxiety because cleaning sneakers is really hard sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and once again, like, th- the likelihood of you getting in trouble for having dirty sneakers at work is really based on either, like, how much of an asshole your boss is or how much your HR person or manager wants to get rid of you. I think totally and and also I think like your marginalized status right like people are probably more likely to notice dirty sneakers on someone who already doesn't you know I guess you know fit the like white supremacist ideal mold Mm -hmm. of like Mm -hmm. what an ideal employee is or something right like I think there's so much more scrutiny absolutely Um, Absolutely. It made me think too with casual business attire, like the implication of specifying clean sneakers with smart casual means that you can wear totally dirty ones in a casual business environment. And like that's totally on brand. <laughs> like just come on in there like covered with mud and you like stepped in dog poop, but like no one cares. Yeah. No, I know. It's really, it's really, th- these are so silly. On the class, class side of things, I was thinking about commuters who may or may not take public transit like there's some walking Mm -hmm. to get Mm -hmm. to where they're going and i mean shoes just by virtue of being worn in those environments then you might add on weather like rain and you know slush and winter time like um keeping sneakers clean is like that's and that's why privilege. Keep, <laughs> that's why you keep them under the desk. That's why there we all know that we were living in Philadelphia. Like everybody took yeah, them. Yeah, seriously. To work. I mean, I like, in Center City. Like, I yeah. have snow boots, rain boots, outdoor shoes versus indoor shoes for sure. Um, it, whereas, like here in Austin, it's such a driving culture. Like, and plus, you know, our weather here is pretty much mostly the same all the time. Uh, you don't see that. Like, I don't see people bringing a spare pair of shoes to work because they're not going to be walking that far. Mm, interesting. Uh, so next one is business casual. And this is one of those things, like, I've never had anybody say, like, oh, we have a business casual dress code to me, like, as as an employee. But it's definitely one of those things I've seen out there when people talk about, like, casual Fridays at work or, like, this work retreat is going to be business casual or just, like, you know, it's... I've seen it in emails from companies, like honestly, who are trying to sell clothes. Here are some examples, according to Indeed, of business casual. Uh, pencil skirts. I thought this was interesting. Pencil skirts, maybe not a pleated skirt. I don't know why. <laughs> Slacks, khakis, trousers, blouses, collared shirts. Here we go again. Button down shirts. Apparently, you can just wear them anytime. Sports coats, blazers, and sweaters. Accessorized with jackets, ties, simple jewelry and belts shoes can include flats lifestyle sneakers whether leather or canvas oxfords loafers mules don't see a lot of mules at work (laughs) these days boots or heels the lifestyle sneakers thing is something that i am aware of only because one of my first jobs as a buyer was in shoes Mm -hmm. and when we would meet with nike adidas like the sneaker brands their line sheet was broken out by like True Athletic, which like at my first job, they wouldn't sell to us because we weren't like, you know, a sneaker store and a lifestyle, which are sneakers mm. that aren't really for doing athletic things. 
Hmm. Um, and it's a whole business, right? And so these are more like fashion sneakers, although unless you're like an avid runner or like an athlete, you're not going to look at them and be like, oh, those are lifestyle sneakers, right? <laughs> yeah. I had actually never heard that term specifically until reading this article. And I'm like, <laughs> I immediately knew what what it was in reference to, right? It's like a right. sneaker that's not like a trainer, like spe- specifically for the athletics, like you said, but I'd never heard it called that. I mean, I think that's a weird term for them to use because how many people really know what that means? Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's so um, generic and void of substance. Like, aren't isn't every sneaker out there technically a lifestyle sneaker like we're living (laughs) our lives right right right. yeah no totally i mean i i remember the first time i went with nike like when i first moved into buying and uh i was asking about some sneakers that i had seen and they were like oh no sorry you're a lifestyle retailer you have to choose from this catalog and uh, they were like i remember one of the pairs of sneakers they showed us the very first time was made of like like zebra print print pony hair and I was like, wow, this is such a useless shoe. I guess that's what lifestyle means. <laughs> it makes me think of like that very like kind of like sneakerhead look of like very jazzy shoes. Yeah. Like a suit or something, you know, like. Totally. I feel like that's very trendy jazzy. at the <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> trendy, very clean, freakishly clean sneakers. <laughs> like you're wearing them for like the first moment, like right now. <laughs> totally. Yeah, I know. I know. Those are the ones that you take. Like I remember in LA near Little Tokyo, there was actually a place you could take your sneakers to be cleaned. That's like all they did was clean sneakers. Um, and of course, it was like a bougie. It was like sneaker spa or something like that. <laughs> but I guess that's where you take your lifestyle sneakers to get them, give yeah. them a spa day. So I was just like <laughs> guessing, Maggie, that when you have to, probably most of your clients, when you have to help them with work related clothing, I would suspect that a lot of them fall into this like business casual. Yeah. Um, something else that stuck out to me, though, I don't know if you all realized that you mentioned confusion. So just on that note, we have casual business and we have business casual. I know. I, <laughs> I had made a typo when I was working on this and I was like, nope, that's what they no. say. So yeah. in casual business, casual sort of leads, I right. suppose, or takes, you know, priority. Whereas in business casual, maybe, you know, the ratio is more skewed towards business. Um, so, yes, I mean, it, it is perpetual confusion with my clients. It's how do I do this? How do I navigate this? Like, while also still, you know, like feeling authentically me, um, how do I adhere to these rules when they don't even follow any kind of line of logic? Like I'm looking at these notes and as people are listening, maybe they're picking these things up too. Like some of the same elements like garment styles that are listed under casual business are also listed under smart casual are also listed under business casual. So like button down shirts, for example, you see make an appearance in all of these different spaces, these different, you know, Mm -hmm. rules, um, blouses. Okay. We see blouses also in all of those categories. Then there's this other, like I made a note of this, like pants versus slacks versus trousers hello like (laughs) what are what are the delineations like i don't know like no wonder people are confused 
And I mean, my, my advice always with clients is like, let's, let's solve for the authenticity piece first. Mm -hmm. And if there are like tweaks and adjustments that need to be made to sort of like, well, I mean, protect their physical and psychological safety at work. That's really freaking important. Mm -hmm. Um, but also, you know, like, uh, compliance, if it's, if it's really strict, how do we, um, walk that line? You know, that's, that's my favorite space is like, okay, here's the rules. Like, let's look, look for the loopholes, the technicalities, (laughs) like how can we get around these things, um, without, you know, arbitrarily breaking rules. So it's interesting, but I mean, even this advice as clear as it might be in terms of like format and structure is just as confusing as just saying the word business casual, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I, th- I thought, I thought this was very confusing. For example, dresses, right? So dresses are mentioned as part of smart casual and as part of business casual. But the thing about dresses is that you, we all know that dresses can come in a really wide spectrum. Like for example, uh, one of my coworkers last week was wearing this cute, just sort of like pretty basic knit black spaghetti strap dress. And I was like, oh, you look so cute. Where did you get your dress? And she said, Cabela's. And I said, wait, no, but like, where did you really get it? I don't know. Do both of you know what Cabela's is? Yes. It's like the outdoors. It's like an outdoor store, right? Like, but more for hunting and fishing. Yes. And I was like, wait, really? And she's like, yeah. (laughs) I was like, okay. (laughs) Like, and it was like, we have a very casual office, right? So I was like, yeah, you know, it would be fine. I mean, not that I'm ever going to write someone up for dress code. Sorry, like not that person. But uh, you know, it would make sense in a casual workplace. But if your place is more like business casual, I feel like probably like a t-shirt dress isn't okay. Right? Yeah. You pro- they probably are looking for something woven. Yeah, I was thinking that, Amanda, like as somebody with like a fashion background, it feels like this text was written by somebody who actually has like no idea at all how to describe clothes. Oh, because like, totally. even, like mm-hmm. button down shirts, yeah. right? Like there's such a wide variety. Like a Hawaiian shirt is technically like a button down oh, shirt. But that would not pass. Ruby, right. I immediately went to a Hawaiian yeah, right? shirt in my mind. That's so funny. I was like, such a, like a, that's like a spectrum, right? There's Hawaiian shirts and Western and, shirts and denim shirts. And even fiber and, content yeah. too, I think plays a really important role, right? Like there's a huge difference between like a polyester suit that you found, you know, at like Burlington Coat Factory and like a bespoke wool suit from like Zenya or something, you know, like there's just so, mm-hmm. there's such a range. Even to go more basic, there's like a big difference between knit pants and woven pants, right? In terms of like their perceived, I don't know, casualness, right? Um, or even how they would look. You know, like think if someone came to work wearing like drop crotch joggers, well, those are pants. I guess they're not right. trousers, right? But like, where do those fit in here? I mean, even khakis, like khakis could be, you know, just your straightforward like twill pants, but they could be have cargo pockets. And does that make them... Mm-hmm less casual or there was a trend for a while where it seemed like guys who worked in like advertising in portland would wear like salmon colored chinos like is that business casual is that casual business i don't know Mm. um yeah i mean okay it's interesting that you bring that up too because as i was reading this and i think you're so right ruby that like it's that Whoever wrote this doesn't know anything about clothes. <laughs> it's so terrible. <laughs> but there is a big perception in terms of the formality or like, I don't know, 
professionalism of prints versus solids. And mm-hmm. so I assume when I'm reading this that people are talking about solids mm-hmm. because there's a lot of, I don't know, like prints have been really gendered. And as we know, the a great masculine denunciation <laughs> has really <laughs> steered business attire in this century. It's just like going strong. And I would assume that print that prints wouldn't be a part of that. Like maybe a little bit of like a a, a, a fine plaid or a fine houndstooth or something, mm-hmm. but not like a floral print, not totally. like bunnies all over it, like not conversational <laughs> prints as they're called. Um, you know, we at Mod Cloth, we got a lot of asks for where to work clothing. And I, I manages the dresses team then. And I said like to my team, I was like, I don't know what that means. Like, honestly, <laughs> like, I have only ever dressed like a wild eccentric person to go to work. Like I have, what does that mean? And we had to do all this reading and research. And one of the big things was like for women specifically, it was like solid colored dresses that with arm coverage, you know, knee length, not bodycon, but not like diaphanous and flowy, no ruffles, really like no detailing, you know, like maybe a tie neck, maybe, but like not, you know, like appliques or lace trim or puff sleeves or anything like that. Um, And that was really eye opening for me. I'm starting to yeah. think about this. I feel like there's there's a metaphor here. So in a previous episode, it was not the last one we did on dress codes, maybe a couple episodes back, we talked about hard pants, which is a term <laughs> oh, that's yes. come out of the pandemic. So if we're thinking about this like spectrum of formality, knits to wovens, if there's a correlation there, like structure, um, aka stiffness, you know is present in a woven or like a bespoke suit even certain blazers versus a knit which has more movement and like lays more softly on the body moves with the body so i'm thinking about like stiffness in terms of corporate culture and just like the the visual takeaway as you like scan an environment like that it's like corporate stuffy like buttoned up you know um maybe there is some connection there to like i don't know i mean physical discomfort comes to mind like knits are way more friendly to the body to wear a lot of times than (laughs) a woven you know with all that structure but um yeah like i'm picturing an an infographic like a scale of casual to formal and like fiber content right you know, shared across mm-hmm. that spectrum as well as yeah. discomfort like i think you hit on something discomfort. there that mm-hmm. like you can't be too comfortable to work which when you say it out loud is <laughs> incredibly <laughs> terrible <laughs> it's so awful it's so awful right <laughs> Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. 
Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriela Antonis is a visual artist, an upcycler, and a fashion designer. But Gabriella Antonis is also a feminist micro-business with radical ideals. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the world needs. If you find yourself in New Orleans, Louisiana, you may buy her ready-to-wear upcycle garments in person at the store Slow Down at 2855 Magazine Street. Slowdown Nola only sells vintage and slow fashion from local designers, and Gabriella's garments are guaranteed to be in stock in person, but they also have a website so you may support this woman-owned and run business from wherever you are. If you're interested in Gabriella making a one-of-a-kind garment for you, DM her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella. That's Gabriella with one L. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. 
High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at HighEnergyVintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Vagabond Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing, accessories, and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single-stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. I was thinking again about that spectrum of like casual to formal and discomfort and the <laughs> stiffness piece, like even down to the footwear, yeah. like we'll see flats mm. in more casual environments, but like the more formal you go, like the higher the heel, which equates to presumably more discomfort as well. I mean, I will tell you, I, until basically the pandemic, wore high heels to work every day. Um, and sometimes like really wild, like platform high heels that maybe like six inches taller. Did that for years. Wow. And I will tell you, guess what happened? I got bunions. <laughs> uh. <laughs> uh, and I got, um, what is that? Plantar fasciitis. I don't know if you've ever had that too. Oh, yeah. Inflammation of the bottom of your feet, basically. So yeah. it's like so silly to me that like to be professional, you have to... Uh, damage your feet <laughs> like what yeah <laughs> um but when we talk about the most uncomfortable of it all it is business professional which i think that's so funny like all these other business attires were not professional but now we're finally there with business professional <laughs> and this is definitely what you think of when you think of lawyers and mm -hmm. bankers uh we're talking about Tidy dresses. This is the word that Indeed used. Tidy, tidy. Which is such a weird... I don't even know what a tidy dress is. If either of you know, let me know. Uh, slacks, skirts, slacks again, according to... Uh, Indeed might want to fix this. I'm assuming they probably meant trousers or something. Dark colored <laughs> suits and ties. I think the color is like really key. Mm. We talked about this in the last episode. Business professional tops include neat button-down shirts, so I'm guessing not Hawaiian shirts, or blouses <laughs> with a blazer. Business professional shoes include heels, loafers, or flats. You can accessorize with minimal jewelry and belts. 
allowed to have belts again. That's great. Okay. You got to hold up your pants. You got to hold up your pants somehow, right? <laughs> um, and I, I mean, this is definitely like when we think of like business clothes, this is what, I mean, I think this is what the average person pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am proud to say I've never had a job where I had to dress like this. I, years ago when Nastiel went bankrupt and I didn't have a job, and neither did my friend Kim, we both interviewed, uh, because there are not a lot of great options in LA. We both interviewed with Ross, uh, mm. you know, like Ross Dress for Less, because yes. apparently their buyers make a bank. Like they get paid so much more than like I've ever made in my career. Um, but they have, they dress like actual business professional. And hmm. I was having so much anxiety <laughs> about this. I was like, what if I get called in for an interview? Like, what am I going to do? I literally don't have anything. And then what if I get a job and I only have one outfit? Like, what will happen? You know, like really fretting about this. Um, The first couple rounds of interviews are really weird and like a video, but like not even in person. You like, they have like a portal and you record yourself answering questions. It's horrible. And fortunately, Ooh. I never made it past that. <laughs> What a relief. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting to me, too, because if you've ever been in a Ross, the clothes available at Ross are definitely not business professional. Who wearing, yeah, I know. wearing like that level. I know. I know. Yeah, it is interesting when I go to trade shows, like whether it's like for the job I have right now, it's more like gift related or apparel in the past. You see all spectrums of buyers there. So I've been the one where everybody I'm with is dressed like a wild and hip and trendy or weird, whatever. But you'll walk right next to someone who is like straight up in like a Navy suit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like and, and business casual in between, you know, lots of lots of people in blouses, you know, tucked mm-hmm. in, looking neat. And then, you know, mm-hmm. my team with like holes in the butts of their jeans and stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and definitely bra straps hanging out. But it is interesting, like just to be working alongside as a peer with people who have to dress more. And in my opinion, like it's so formal, you know, yeah. have, have you either of you had a job where you had to dress this professional? No, I mean, I will say there were times in admissions where we did have to kind of like dress nicer than our average day to day. And it was usually like for a very, you know, for a big meeting with like the university president, maybe, or, um, you know, sometimes like certain events we would go to, um, there was like an expectation to dress a little nicer, but I mean, similar, kind of similarly to you, Amanda, like I was working for an art school. So like we were a lot looser with our dress code, <laughs> right. but I would definitely be at like admissions fairs and there would be admissions counselors from like Stanford or Harvard or whatever, like, you know, at a couple booths down and they would be like dressed to the nines cause they're recruiting for like law school, you know, but I, I felt like I had permission to be a little more artsy and funky cause I'm like recruiting people to come do like photography programs and like, you know, maybe like architecture, like fashion and stuff. So it was a little, a little looser for us. Um, but yeah, I don't know what I would do if I had to dress like that formal. I'm trying to think. So like, state government like i said um i worked in several different agencies and offices this was in the rural south by the way i think that's important for context um so i worked inside of an office of legal services so like my boss and my coworkers were 
lawyers, right, who adhered to that very traditional down to like pantyhose, which I know we'll talk about later. Um, very much dark colors, like solid, mm-hmm. pretty subdued, like corporate structured. Um, but we had a business casual or casual, yeah, business casual dress code in the office. Um, but for cases like when we had to go into legislative session or appear in front of a judge or the court or whatever, we had to, you know, there was the expectation that we would elevate a bit um, for that environment. But as you all were sharing about stories around job interviews, like I have I have an example from like the other side of the spectrum. So there's always this concern like, you know, this isn't professional enough. Mm-hmm. Am I showing up, you know, um, as professional as I can? Am I going to land the right impression? I I interviewed for like a big box drugstore retailer um, probably 20 years ago. Um, I was kind of fresh out of college. And one of the pieces of feedback I received, like I didn't make it through to the next round, but um, the... <laughs> The supervisor, the hiring manager was like, you did great. And one thing that stuck out to me was like, I think you were a bit overdressed, which let let me tell you, I remember what I was wearing. It was like a black knit mock neck, short sleeve turtleneck and like plaid trousers and some pointy toed flats. It was like pretty casual. (laughs) Yeah. But the job, the role itself was like, some of it involved inventory management and stocking. So it was one of those situations like you, Ruby, like probably a t-shirt and yoga pants would have been like more appropriate, you know, on the job. But this was an interview. Like, I'm not going to, yeah. I don't know. I'm not, not going to show up in, I don't know, jeans. It just, you know, it didn't, wasn't, wasn't my style. Wow. And it's like you were wearing a tuxedo. This is wild to me. That would be <laughs> right. Or like a formal gown or something. I know. Like, yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I have, I have a similar interview story, Maggie. When I was actually, I was on the other side of it. I was on a hiring team um, and we were looking to hire more people to join our admissions team. Um, and there were two there were two interviews that stuck out. The first one, um, actually, this one I wasn't hiring for. This one I recommended a friend to apply um, for a position at the company I was working for, and um, they didn't get the job. And I heard later through the grapevine, kind of in this very like rude, whispery way, um, that the reason they hadn't that they were otherwise very qualified, but the reason they hadn't gotten the job was because they showed up to the interview in shorts. Um, and I don't know if that's true or not, (laughs) but I was just like, oh man, you know, like that's a really harsh criticism, you know, to just, to be like, oh, they would have gotten it except for this. It's like, oh, like, okay. Um, and then another time I was actually on a hiring committee for an admissions job and we had somebody show up, um, in a full suit, like head to toe, um, like dark Navy blue and, the interview like went really well. And as soon as this person left the interview, my boss turned to me and said, she's hoping to make more money than we can offer her. So we shouldn't (gasps) even bother. Wow. (laughs) Just like purely based on the suit, like purely based on the suit. She was like, if she has that suit, she wants to make more money than we are going to pay. That is wild because often, you know, in college, it's sort of like when you graduate, you need to buy a suit. 
right? And mm-hmm. a lot of my friends' parents bought them suits as sort of like a graduation gift. Like, now you're going out and you're going to get a job, right? So I, I, I find that really offensive. Not that yeah, I know me too. Interview, but you know, yeah, right? No, me too. I thought that was like kind of an egregious assumption that like this person has a lot of money or has this expectation from this job. Like clearly she was just trying to put her best foot forward, you know? I mean, um, yeah. you may have read this Indeed Guide to Business Attire, but says that you should dress mm-hmm. up even if the office is casual for the interview. So I... Totally. Well, and apparently shorts is not, is way too casual. So. Too casual, right. <laughs> I mean, I guess to me, it's like which yeah. kind of shorts, you know? Like, yeah, right? No, I thought that too. I was like, was it shorts or was it like a culottes situation? Exactly. Or like, like a mm. Who knows? Yeah. That's, I don't know. I have like so many questions. You know, uh, as you were talking, I it made me think about a time that I interviewed. Uh, it was at Nasty Gal. So the fun thing about, I, sh- I don't know. I will just say, I think we all have experienced this in our lives in a variety of different scenarios. That there are so many red flags sometimes that you refuse to acknowledge. Mm-hmm. And then later you're like, oh, those were red flags, weren't they? So mm-hmm. I actually interviewed at Nasty Gal twice in a three-month period. And uh, I should not have taken that job. It was horrible. But the first time I interviewed there, uh, it was fine. Uh, I went in wearing clothes from Nasty Gal because that's what you do when you work in the industry. You wear clothes from the retailer. That's the dress code, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I remember specifically that I was wearing like this black jumpsuit and I had on a bolo tie and I had this like faux fur coat and really huge uh, platform heeled shoes. And that was not how I dressed to work at Mod Cloth, where I dressed in Mod Cloth clothes. And the interview was like fine, although like to be honest, the people who interviewed me I found to be very unpleasant. And then no one ever responded to my emails ever again. They completely ghosted me. And a couple of months later, my friend Sherry got hired there and you know, they were looking for someone to manage the apparel team and she said, "Well, you interviewed my friend Amanda, but then you ghosted her. Like she's probably the most experienced person in LA right now. You should hire her." And they were like, oh, we did interview her? And then the other person was like, oh, yeah, no, she's the one who looked just like she worked at Mod Cloth. And she was wearing Mod Cloth clothes when she came in. And Sherry was like, I know that's not true because she, uh, I saw what she wore that day. So that's oh not even gosh. a real excuse. And so then they brought me in for another interview and I should have been like, oh fuck you. Gosh. But I was like, oh, I want to go work with my best friend. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's such a crazy assumption too, like that they wouldn't even recognize their own clothes and they would just assume you're wearing clothes from your former I employer. Mean, like, they just like, they saw mod cloth on my resume and like the, in my yeah. in their mind, that's just like who I was, which also just shows how like silly they were. Yeah. Um, but I'm not, I'm not an amateur. I wouldn't wear mod cloth clothes to go to a nasty gal interview. It's like a very different aesthetic. Um, it's like wearing uh, business casual to go to like a business professional environment. I mean, I didn't know that now, but I'm going to use that analogy all the time. <laughs> um, so, you know, interestingly, like Indeed has a lot of tips for helping people get dressed for their various jobs. And Something that I really noticed is like going back to what Ruby said in the last episode about status, power, sex as gender for our purposes and personality, you start to see a lot of this, all these underlying structures within the workplace that sort of play out via clothing. For example, here's, this is from Indeed. If you work in an office, pay close attention to the people, the way people dress. 
while the office may be casual, you might notice that people in leadership positions dress slightly more formally. You may choose to dress similarly to the people who hold the position you would like to reach. I, I mean, I will tell you that describes my current job right there. Whereas mm. like people who are in like lower level positions within the office will come to work in leggings maybe, right? Or Hawaiian mm-hmm. shirt. But people on the higher level, like in the executive meetings, I would say are more like somewhere between smart casual, business casual. Now, no one's wearing a suit, right? But like they're in almost there. Um, and this whole idea of like dress for the job you want, I'm so tired of hearing that. <laughs> I think this I think there's variation depending on what industry you're in and there's some regionality involved as well like I'm thinking about a a client right now who has the opposite problem she's like on a mission to leadership and owning her own business one day and like you know managing a team and all of these things and like her direct supervisor who presumably has that like high highest most leadership position is like more apt to dress casually and she's like i don't want to overshadow or like steal her thunder like she's used a few different phrases to like you know i don't i don't want to show up my boss but also like i want everyone else who's there to know what i'm about and like i'm on a mission so it's it's interesting um I think, yeah, she's in the Midwest and I think Pacific Northwest, like we see, uh, of course, Microsoft is headquartered here, like their leadership team, often you'll see a suit, Mm -hmm. but it's paired with like a graphic (laughs) t-shirt and maybe clean, bright, bright, shiny, clean lifestyle sneakers, (laughs) like elements from every piece, you know, every Mm -hmm. variation of like dress code um and one it's it's weird so maybe tech is an outlier i think it or like you know advertising like more creative professions i do think the fact that lifestyle sneakers are expensive and there are brands whose entire brand is to you know create more expensive lifestyle sneakers like you know like there's that one brand golden goose for example uh i think that the era of really expensive like three four or five hundred dollar lifestyle sneakers has made them more acceptable for higher level employees i think it's just another way to show your status and when you really think about no matter what your company's dress code is you do see these subtle shifts as people move up the ranks and you really see the you get a clear visual guide to the hierarchy within that office by looking at how people are dressed, you can tell who has the higher level roles, even if it's just yeah. because their shirt is more expensive. I think I think there's also like sometimes maybe in more artsy or like casual work environments like tech. I'm thinking of um, my spouse's former employer was a tech company and the owner of their company would like frequently show up to work in like basketball shorts <laughs> and like a quarter zip like fleece oh gee <laughs> which is like yeah um which is like so funny because it's also like it's like yeah he's the owner of the company it's like he can kind of do whatever he wants but like right. i bet if other people were to follow his lead and like show up in basketball shorts like 
they might get some side eye. Yeah. <laughs> no, so it's 100%. almost like a power move of just like, well, what are you going to do? Like, I can do whatever Look I want. Look what I can get away with. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. He wouldn't do that in front of investors if there were like a big all hands meeting or something. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe not. And maybe that's like a power thing, right? Like maybe when he's in a position of being superior to everybody else, it's like fine to dress down. But as Mm -hmm. soon as you're Mm -hmm. in a room with people who are your peers or maybe you're even, you know, fancy, wealthy people that you're trying to impress, maybe pull out all the stops. But I don't don't know. Maybe he did show up to board meetings in cargo shorts or basketball shorts. Wow. I mean, that would be a power move if if he did. <laughs> yeah. It yeah. would well people would be like he's a disruptor. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, right? I also I also think that men in power get a lot more passes than women um, in power. Yeah. For sure. Just, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think if a female CEO were to do that, I think there would be a lot more scrutiny. I mean, there's already more scrutiny of women in the workplace and mm-hmm. anyone who's not a cis man in the workplace in general. Definitely, so. definitely. And then the higher up the ladder you are, I mean, no one has been more acutely aware of the power gap in corporate infrastructures than I have been recently. So uh, we're just, like, there's a totally different uh, code of contact for people at the top versus everyone else in terms of like totally. how they can treat other people. Um, and oh, it's yeah. been professional, right? Mm-hmm. Um. speaking of professional here's some more advice from indeed dressing appropriately there we've got that word appropriate right can help you be seen as a professional employee who cares about your success in the role my question is why wouldn't the quality of one's work or one's work ethic be the true indicator of a so-called professional employee why is it this appropriate clothing because those are harder to measure, Amanda. Right, <laughs> I know. Lazy. This is so <laughs> tough, right? Like, this is like reading this. I was like, oh man, we know, we know. Indeed, is a total narc, you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> here's another one. If you're going to a business meeting, ask your colleagues who may know or have met with the same person about how their offices operate and how you can appear respectful and professional during your meeting with them. So I think, once again, we get professional here, but respectful. And this respect, polite, these were words that I saw coming up time and time again in terms of dress code. This line of thinking implies that you are only worthy of respect or being taken seriously based on what you're wearing. Once again, reinforcing this hierarchy within the office. Um. That what you wear yourself would be a show of respect to someone else, I think Mm -hmm. is very interesting. This idea of it being more polite to wear this than that is also interesting because it comes back to like someone else's feelings about you ultimately. Um, and yeah. no matter, you know, we talked about the discomfort meter going up, right? As your work dress code gets more intense, it's sort of like, ugh, it's dark. It's like work, work. Yeah. I, I think it plays into that power aspect yeah. as well, right? Because it's like, it's almost like through your sartorial choices, you are conveying like an acceptance of this hierarchy of power. right like you're almost showing like i will adhere to this code like you are setting this code and i am respecting it and like 
I am subordinate to you. And you're like accepting that status. Yes. And that yeah. like lower sense of power by like accepting those rules. Yeah. Like respect equals compliance equals subservience, totally. submission. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I was telling you about the story before we started re recording about something that I witnessed at work where uh, the owner of the company came over and was yelling at us. And then he yelled at my coworker who was eating lunch at the time for eating while he was talking to her. Like she was supposed to put her food away while he yelled at her. And... <laughs> She said, like later, obviously she did not say this at the time. She said, I can't believe he said that to me because there have been so many times where we have been in a meeting with him where he's walked away to go in the kitchen to get food and then come back and like literally like made a sandwich or something in the middle of the meeting while you were talking. And oh, I was God. like, yeah, I mean, this is really interesting, right? Because a lot of this, what's professional, what's acceptable, right? What's polite depends on your level in the company. It's all, once again, it goes back to power structures um, and mm -hmm. what is professional for us versus them is really related to what your role is within that company. Like if I came into work and slammed a door and started screaming at someone, I would probably get in trouble. But if the CEO does that, well, that's okay. They're the CEO and they can come in in basketball shorts too, but I probably can't, you know? Yeah. And so it just... It, I mean, honestly, I think we're all saying that like everyone should just quit their jobs. Is that what we're saying here? I don't know. How, <laughs> no, but it just really points to you know these power structures that exist between workplaces. And you know, it was interesting. I remember like six months ago, maybe a little bit longer, saying to my husband, I said, you know, after only working for myself from 2020 until late 2021, I forgot about the power structures that exist in a lot of corporate environments. Um, where mm -hmm. you have to let someone be mean to you or cut you off or talk down to you or just like fundamentally like talk over you and you have to like accept it with a smile um, because of the yeah. power structures that are in place and that I'd kind of forgotten about that after like close to two years of just hanging around Dustin all the time and no one else, you know? <laughs> oh my God. And I was like, it's painful when you've been out of it and go back into it. You're like, this sucks. Why is this okay? Um, and I think yeah. a lot of dress code really ties back to that as well. So I found a really great 2015 piece called, and which I could literally read this whole thing to you all, but it would be annoying. So you should read it. It's going to be linked in the show notes. It's called, You Call It Professionalism, I Call It Oppression in a Three-Piece Suit by Carmen Rios. In my opinion, it is one of the best things that has been on the internet about dress codes because I've read an awful lot. Sorry, indeed. Um, and I have a little bit of a long passage that I'm going to read here and I apologize, but I do feel empowered to do it because I've already gotten Ruby to agree to read some of the, uh, messages from listeners. So I'll have to do less reading this week. Um, dress codes make room to turn a lot of isms into policies, especially since typical standards of professional dress are at the core racist, sexist, classist, and xenophobic. For workers who come from a non-Western background, for example, workplace dress codes can invisibilize them. What folks see as professional garb rarely encompasses non-Western dress. For Rastafarian or Muslim employees, dressing or appearing in line with your faith becomes a vulnerability. Employers may, might be critical of dreadlocks or religious accessories or symbols, 
which puts those particular non-white workers in a disadvantaged position to move ahead in their professional lives. Women of color, meanwhile, still face objections to their own natural hair in the workplace. It can also be burdensome to subscribe to a dress code when it means subscribing to a gender binary that doesn't speak to your experiences. More femme-identified men might have trouble striking a balance between what's professional and what feels right, and androgynous or genderqueer folk might be forced to dress in a more binary and consequently oppressive way. Women face a unique conundrum, namely that they can't be seen as too feminine or too masculine and that different occasions call for different apparel. Um, So the person who wrote this works in D.C., Um, And so I just wanted to jump in and say that as I continue. I remember being told once that I should wear pants, not a skirt to the hill, meaning Capitol Hill, as if wearing a dress or skirt somehow undermined me as a worker in historically male institution. For some women, dressing in traditional male garb helps them to gain power. But in some workplaces, it works to their detriment because their colleagues find it inappropriate. On the flip side, women might might be received more warmly clothed in dresses and soft blouses, but also be dismissed as flitty, unserious, and unintelligent. For workers without money, dressing professionally can actually be an impossible request. When workers at all levels are expected to dress formally, the workers bringing in the least income must choose between saving up or dressing up. And often the cost of going without the right shoes, shirts, or dresses can cost them promotions and other opportunities in their career. Which really is exactly what Indeed was telling us without telling us, right? Uh That you have to dress for the job you want. And who cares about your credit card debt? Totally. So thoughts, feelings here? The line about you know, the workers that bring in the least income have to choose between saving up or dressing up was pretty compelling. I thought, um, there is some more insight that I'll share in terms of like how this plays out in real life examples. Um, I have a lot of client stories to share. Um, but yeah, like how many employees are faced with that same decision and maybe it's not just a financial burden in this case, like um, you were talking about genderqueer folks or non-binary folks, like they have to uh, pick a lane, neither of which feels authentic to them, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, it's harmful. It can cause mental health issues and anguish and just, you know, like an overall distraction from from their job, which is upsetting. It is. And, you know, something we've touched on a few times, like a word that has come up is that a lot of this almost begins to feel like a costume. That we Uh are being asked to wear a costume that was dictated by someone else, possibly a bunch of rich dudes back in like, what was that? The 1700s, Ruby? The great masculine (laughs) denunciation. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. Right? And it's just like stuck, right? (laughs) Like it's still going on. And, you know, the reality is like, we are pushed into the situation depending on where you work and what the dress code is that you have to have two wardrobes. You have to have what you wear to work and what you wear outside of work. And this has made a lot of retailers, a lot of money selling both of those, you know? And it just seems so silly that, I mean, you know, a trope that you would see in women's magazines in like the eighties and nineties was this idea of desk to dinner. 
So like mm-hmm. how you can take your work clothes and transform them into evening clothes. And I actually had a Barbie as a child that did that. She had like a pink business suit on, <laughs> but you could take off her skirt and blazer and turn it inside out. And they were like holographic. Oh my God. Something like that. If anybody's listening and knows of which I speak, but like this idea that like your work clothes, you can't even wear after work is wild. I feel like that was also a really popular like fashion prompt in like mm-hmm. early aughts fashion school was like day to night. Day to night. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, these transformation garments with this idea, which is so funny because I feel like I'm at the age now where like, yeah, like when you were talking about like in adulthood having control of your life, I think also I had this concept when I was like a teenager or something that like when you're an adult, you just like go to work and you just like part, you, you put on like a sparkly tank top and like go dancing after. Right? <laughs> and I'm like, I never do that. Like I come straight <laughs> home. I like take a shower, eat dinner, yeah, watch TV and go to bed. <laughs> I know. I'm like, who are these people who do stuff after work? But I definitely remember <laughs> that time in my life, you know? Yeah. It was brief. <laughs> like it was brief for me in the long run. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but there has always been this idea that like, I mean, Obviously, people don't adhere to it as much now because we live very different lives than people did 30 years ago. But that you would have one outfit for work. And then if you went out to dinner or drinks or something else afterwards, you would change in between. And of course, those clothes would be totally different than what you would wear on the weekend. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't wear any of those clothes that I just mentioned to a party. That's a whole other set of clothes. Yeah. And so it's just like you have to buy more and more and of course you need shoes and undergarments and all these other things that go with all of those different outfits and so for the most part i mean we know people overconsume clothing right now but it's not because they have all these like specific day-to-day changes that they have to make um but regardless like you would think like okay well we have changed so much about how we live like even you know, I had this realization the other day that Dustin and I like exclusively eat dinner on the couch, which is something people wouldn't have done like 40 or 50 years mm. ago, you know? Um, and I think during the pandemic, it became even more normal to just eat on the couch, right? Uh, we've made all these other changes in terms of how we live our lives, but yet we're still sort of ascribing to these dress codes that feel kind of old uh and rooted in just a different time and they really are a financial burden you know even if you were saying okay i'm gonna go buy all of my work clothes in that one section at target that has workish clothes right or i'm gonna do it at h&m it's still expensive and a lot of those clothes are gonna need to be dry cleaned or hand washed and line dried so there's a lot of work or money involved there and you know not fast turnaround in terms of laundry and so you might need to buy more and it's just such a burden. I mean, listen, I was genuine, genuinely freaking out that I might get a job at Ross Dress for Less and need to go buy like five suits. I was like, how? I'll have to get like a new credit card, you know? <laughs> yeah. And for some for some jobs too, it's like you can't get away with getting the professional stuff at like Target. Like nope. people might, mm-hmm. if you're in certain fields, like people will know mm-hmm. or they will notice. And like you have to get like an Armani suit or like, something you know that's like a recognizable brand or like of a certain quality um 
sometimes that's non-negotiable. Like if you, I don't know, if you were to work at like, I'm thinking of like very high-end retailers, like let's say like Tiffany's or something, like you probably can't show up in like a Ross dress for less suit. <laughs> I don't know if um, they have them there, to but a yeah, customer yeah, definitely, yeah. Definitely. I mean, I think that's a really good call out as well. And so this idea of like what's professional is kind of a moving target based on who you, where you work and who made the rules and who you mm-hmm. are individually. I think you hit on something really um, profound and important here too, Amanda, which is like the backbone of this um, is capitalism and yep. all of its shortcomings. Like the idea that we have to have different clothing for every context in which we show up is sounds to me like a really smart, just torture that word that we've seen earlier today, <laughs> heard earlier, a smart marketing ploy yeah. to get people to buy more shit. Oh, totally. Right. I mean, I think like if based on how dynamic, if you will, the policies around professionalism are in terms of dress, it could mean that like mm-hmm. every job you have, you have to buy a completely different wardrobe. Right. And so, you know, people change yeah. jobs more often than they did in, say, our parents' generation, which I think is a good thing. But it could mean a reboot of your wardrobe every time you shift jobs. Honestly, it has meant that for me. Um, and that's another thing that keeps you shopping, right? Keeps the capitalist wheel turning. And yet it's all so subjective. You know, it, um. it's so interesting that we all sign on for this. I mean, kind of because we have no choice. Yeah. One other thing I want to touch on, I know we we have a lot to cover, but the the line about like dressing in line with your faith, making you vulnerable and how dress codes that we're seeing um, in professional quote unquote environments doesn't really create any space for non-Western influences and beliefs. Um, I find that extremely ironic considering all of this, the discussion we've had about modesty and where that comes from. Mm-hmm. Like, it's all so, like, waspy, you know, like, very white, very Western. Mm-hmm. Um, very Christian, too. Very right? Christian. Like, there's not room yeah. for people of, like, it's colonialism. Muslim or Hindu or Jewish faith. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Very, it's very colonial. Uh, I, you know, I think a great example is in Japan, when you go get on the subway at rush hour, it is full of men all wearing the same exact suit. It's always like a gray or navy suit with a tie, a white shirt, same shoes. Everybody has the same haircut. Um, and it'll just be like a hundred guys in the car. It's like their uniform. And it's very Western, right? It's very, I mean, it's, it's coming straight out of like, european influences yet japan's on the other side of the world but that's the uniform for being professional at work there um and that it's even more prescribed than it is here where everybody's literally wearing the same exact suit it's wild like if you were with someone and lost them you might it might take you a really long time to locate them because they would just be lost (laughs) in this crowd it's so interesting and, you know, once again, we're looking at, like, the other side of the planet. This this idea of professionalism has made its way there. Like, homogeneity, yeah. right? Like, the ultimate in 
conformity. Definitely. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Conformity for sure. If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles by embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at wear underscore st. Dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicwear, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnicwear in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnicwear recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. 
Picnicware offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. Is there a little bit of Italy in your soul? Are you an enthusiast of pre-loved decor and accessories? Bring vintage Italian style and history into your space with the pewter thimble. We source useful and beautiful things and mend them where needed. We also find gorgeous illustrations and make them print worthy. Tarot cards, tea towels, and hand-picked treasures available to you from the comfort of your own home. Responsibly sourced from across Rome, lovingly renewed by fairly paid artists and artisans, with something for every budget. Discover more at thepewterthimble.com. Deco Denim is a startup based out of San Francisco, and it sells clothing and accessories that are sustainable, gender fluid, size inclusive, and high quality, made to last for years to come. Deco Denim is trying to change the way you think about buying clothes. Founder Sarah Mattis wants to empower people to ask important questions like, where was this made? Was this garment made ethically? Is this fabric made of plastic? Can this garment be upcycled? And if not, can it be recycled? Sign up at decodenim.com to receive $20 off your first purchase. They promise not to spam you and send out no more than three emails a month, with two of them surrounding education or a personal note from the founder. Again, that's decodenim.com. So speaking of conformity, you know, I think we've talked a lot about what is professional and we really haven't really like solidified on like, this is the definite definition of what is professional to wear. But I do think we have an idea of what is often considered unprofessional, right? Like I will just say, I am a very unprofessional looking person. I have very long hair. I wear it down. I wear a lot of bold prints and ruffles. I wear weird shoes. Uh, I wear white eyeliner. You know, I'm breaking, I don't wear a belt, but I guess I would be allowed to. Um, I'm definitely breaking all the rules of all of the dress codes we've just discussed. And yeah, like, I. oh, and I'm covered with tattoos. So there's that too. But I'm sure, Maggie, I mean, you yourself has have dealt with these ideas of being unprofessional or professional, both like on your own, but also with your clients. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the things that comes to mind when I think about unprofessional is I want to introduce a little bit of hope and positivity <laughs> for the folks who are listening and to you all. We've, we've gotten, gotten kind of dark and deep today. <laughs> I guess it but, turns out dress codes are like really dark. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, they certainly can. Yeah, be, right? yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So there, there are a number of campaigns circulating the globe about like dismantling the myth around professionalism and just like, totally breaking apart that standard. Um, I don't know who had the first campaign, but it's like, it's a side by side sort of image where you see a person covered in tattoos, piercings, maybe they have funky colored hair on one side, all of those things are visible. And on the other side, you see them buttoned up with their 
their white coat, you know, maybe they're a doctor. It's like this idea that, <laughs> you know, um, in order to be trusted to offer life-saving care or whatever, you have to fit this certain archetype. Obviously, that's not true, right? I know a lot of amazing doctors, lawyers, people on Wall Street who, like you, Amanda, are covered in tattoos. Mm -hmm. They might even like white eyeliner and like funky shoes every once in a while. <laughs> um, the idea that professionalism has anything to do with what you're wearing, I think, is total bullshit. Yeah. I feel like all of us can probably agree that that's the case. Mm -hmm. um, there are, you know, I mentioned industries and regionality, like those things are important considerations. You're going to see variation across different spaces, but like the the most strict and stringent in terms of dress code, like doctors come to mind, lawyers, anyone who works in money, like financial managers, politicians, um, even teachers to a degree as like public servants. Um, yeah, the, the idea is they can't they can't be trusted if they have funky colored hair or you know those kinds of things make them unprofessional it's just not true um anyone who has ever spent any time in a sally beauty supply store or who works there i want to apologize in advance because this may be triggering but when we're talking about unprofessional that idea there was a big campaign associated with I think a line of products or something from Sally um, that featured a queer creator, I believe, um, and musician and vocalist who sang a song called Colored Hair. And the hook, like the, the chorus of the song was, having colored hair doesn't make you unprofessional. <laughs> um, and the reason why I said this may be triggering, I have since found out, this was a, f a few years ago, I've since found out they played that song on loop in stores oh, no. um, like all the time so <laughs> i am sorry to anyone i did that that okay when you were um, saying it i did feel like i knew that song because i had definitely spent some time at sally uh mm -hmm. so maybe that's why it was familiar <laughs> yeah um i think amanda you mentioned caught like tie collared blouses when we were talking about like um women or feminine presenting folks like showing up in these more powerful positions and leadership roles i discovered and developed an affinity for that exact style of garment in pursuit of finding creative and fun ways to conceal my tattoos uh -huh. um i also have a lot of them um several of which are now more visible um than in past years like I told myself for the longest time I wasn't going to go past like my like cap sleeve length, you know, mm -hmm. just the top of my shoulders. I'm like, fuck that. I'm in Seattle now. I have my own business. I'm going to go full on sleeve probably <laughs> on both arms at, at some point. But I have, I was always and am still to a degree. There's like some residual, um, I don't know. Shame is the first word that comes to mind. Just like, consciousness and awareness of the tattoo i have across my chest it definitely draws attention if it's visible if i'm in a especially if i'm in a professional setting um and really especially when i was working in like those business professional environments like state government um even though like i was never reprimanded or like 
directly called out for it, there were unspoken reactions that made me even more sensitive about it. Like when I went for job interviews, I always went for something with a high neck Mm. to make sure that wasn't even an issue. Um, Love, love a tie collar blouse. Um, And like I said, through trying to figure out how to cover up my tattoo, I discovered like, hey, this is something that I actually love with or without the tattoo. Um, Yeah, I got really frustrated because, again, I mentioned this, right? I'd make quite an effort to show up as professional. And I look around at my colleagues (laughs) and I'm like, sweatpants and tank tops and flip flops. Um, Let me think. Uh, Okay, we were talking about law. Um, in terms of like keeping pace with like fashion changes and even just like social conventions, law is the slowest moving, right? They are mm-hmm. like the the oldest of the outdated, antiquated rules. Um, I have a friend right now who works in government that operates in that same space, and she happens to have like crazy rainbow hair which is amazing. Like half her head is shaved. It's really vibrant and dramatic. So that's fine when she's like inside the main agency, but when she has to make court appearances, instead of changing her actual hair, she has, has like a wig collection of like, yeah, all different, you know, quote unquote, natural colors and textures to cover it up when she, when she has to show up for court, which is pretty cool. But we're, we're also talking about financial barriers. Like she's made a substantial investment to like adhere and conform to these standards after paying what I can only imagine is hundreds of dollars to maintain (laughs) that amazing hair color. Right. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. And she's probably hot. Wigs are hot. I yeah. mean, like hot looking, yeah, but also are. like hot temperature. <laughs> temperature. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Wow. I mean, yeah. That's 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 a that's a real devotion to both professionalism and having cool hair. <laughs> um, you know, another thing that I don't want to get too deep into you, but that does come up as a a lot of as a part of a lot of dress codes that I also think can be kind of. I don't know, sometimes it's subjective, but often more than anything, it's hurtful. And I think it can be classist as well, are hygiene codes. Um, mm. I know, oh. Maggie, you have some stories about that. You all already in the last episode heard about my armpit hair. Uh, this is one that I, it, like, for lack of a better adjective, it sucks. <laughs> when It does. It, I, yeah. 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 So I want to acknowledge the the armpit hair comment and say, like, I am team armpit hair as well. It's been just in the last couple of years that I've fully embraced that and owned it and been like, I don't give a fuck. But I also have the privilege of not answering to someone who has a dress code. I don't report to a company or, you know, a supervisor anymore. So all of that to say... um, Body hair as a concept comes up a lot, a lot. in client conversations. And yes. um, there's there's definitely like an expectation from media and just general Western standards of beauty that for women and feminine presenting folks, that's unacceptable, uh, mm-hmm. which I, I don't understand. Um, 
but so that that's on armpit hair. I just want you to know, like I'm, I'm with you on that. Uh, body odor is another thing that comes to mind. Uh, I had a friend who worked at a small town bank and they had a really, really strict dress code. Uh, pantyhose, like nylons were specified. Ugh. Um, if that gives you an, any, any idea of like how, how strict it was. Um, but my friend was taken aside by, I think initially a coworker as like a friendly, like, Hey, heads up. This is kind of a, an issue or it could become an issue. Uh, but was later ultimately reprimanded by a supervisor. Like, um, there had been complaints that they had an evident body odor, oh, whatever that means. I, I don't even know. That. So, yeah, I mean, I don't remember the exact, like, I I feel like they transferred them to a different area. Like, they were definitely customer-facing right at the front, like a teller position. Um, yeah, I, I want to say maybe they gave them an ultimatum. It was like, this has got to be addressed, or we're going to, like, put Ooh. you in the basement kind of thing, like, with oh, the God. scanner. I, I don't know, but there was definitely a verbal reprimand, and... Wow. I will never forget that conversation. Like they were devastated. I mean, completely humiliated and tape, you know, caught off guard. It just seems like really mean. It just seems like really mean yeah. to somebody for something like that. Cause it's like, you really don't know what that person, what that person's story is. Right. Like it could be something that's completely outside of their control. Like sometimes people have to like take certain medications yeah. that could like yeah. cause body odor or maybe they're like, yeah, like suffer, suffering from some illness or something, you know, like there's just so much like, hormonal stuff. It could yeah, be there's so, like, yeah, there's so much stuff there, I think, that is like already so kind of like shameful and, and hard to deal with. And then to be told on top of that, that like other people are noticing uh, this and like have a problem with it is like, I mean, it strikes so me cruel. as like, corporate sanctioned bullying that's what like, i how think is this totally. yeah <laughs> yeah i mean you know how humiliating how like to and then yeah. you you know you probably have no choice but to come back there again the next day and it does it feels like bullying like it, yeah. it doesn't yeah. have to be like a work conversation it's really really fucked up i have had to at one of my jobs i was forced by the district manager to have a conversation with someone who worked for me about their body odor and i just like I wished I would die while we were doing it. Um, It's hard to even tell someone you love. Like, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I want to like tell a family member, like someone I'm very close to and like love dearly. Like, Hey, like, you know, like this is kind of getting a little. Yeah. Yeah. Things are getting a little pungent and it's like hard, you know, it's like someone you love, someone you don't know at all or like have a relationship with outside of work. Like that's a, such a tough it's yeah it's thing to have to confront yeah it's it's terrible uh but then also the companies will have policies about like requiring people to wear makeup right or groom their hair Mm -hmm. a certain way and these things also just i mean there's like 100 things under the covers there they're all terrible but it feels like such an invasion of someone's bodily autonomy to say like hey you need to wear mascara or you need to change your shampoo or you have to stop using natural deodorant or I need you to straighten your hair or blow it out or something like that, you know? 
It's totally yeah. body policing. Yeah. Yes. Like yeah. you mentioned the makeup thing. I have a friend who experienced exactly that. Like she had this really like super efficient morning routine that included showering and getting to the office while her hair was still wet. For some reason, the wet hair was an issue. What? While they were at it, it was like, we strongly encourage this. They couldn't require it explicitly, but they were like, hey, you know, if if you want to advance in this position, if you care about your workplace and how you present, like, we are going to encourage you to dry your hair. But also while you're at it, because you also wear makeup. Like, Ugh. Yeah. How does that have anything to do with her ability to perform in her role? I I don't understand. So there's um that makes me think of um in the dress codes book that I that I read. Um I think we talked a little bit about Title Nine, Mm -hmm. um, Maggie in the last episode. Um, but something we didn't touch on that's also pretty interesting is Title Seven um of the Civil Rights Act, which prohibits sex discrimination in employment. Um, and so that was interesting because the book goes through a couple different um like notable cases um that were brought to court like as potential violations of title seven and it's kind of a huge bummer because pretty much the courts ruled that like it's actually totally fine for employers to have like different dress codes for men and women like along these gender binaries um but it's some of the some of them are like that where there was like one case um Let's see. It's uh, Darlene Jesperson was a bartender at Harrah's, so like a casino. Um, And they basically were telling her like she had to wear makeup for work. And she was like, I'm not going to like that has nothing to do with my work. Um, And they basically were able to get around it um, by saying like, oh, you know, we have like an equivalent dress code for our male employees. But it's not equivalent because it's like, but it's like, oh, makeup is like expected. It's, It's very it's very shitty and it's very binary. And even though technically sex discrimination is prohibited, like companies find all this way, all these ways to get around it. Um, another thing that I thought was interesting along those lines, I think they were talking about Hooters and how they only hire like women who look a certain way to work at Hooters. And the way that a lot of these places are able to like get around that is like, you're not just being hired as like a server, you're being hired as like a server slash performer. So you're like technically kind of like auditioning for this role or like it kind of allows them by like reclassifying the positions. Yeah, it like allows them to essentially like justify policing your appearance because it's like part of their business model or like part of their Mm. like client experience or something, Um, which is really fucked up when you you think about it. Yeah. Well, that's a great transition to another thing that often comes up relating to hygiene and dress codes that I definitely don't like hearing about, which is undergarments. And specifically, oh. it always comes back to the bra, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. I know, Maggie, you have a little anecdote there. Yeah. So first of all, I know you mentioned this earlier in the conversation, Amanda. We had a listener oh. um, weigh in on Instagram today uh about their experience um growing up in a catholic school environment where uniforms were required on top of the uniform requirement was 
specific requirements around undergarments, like bras specifically, of course, like you said, they could only wear white or a quote unquote skin color, which is oh, interesting man. because there's a <laughs> spectrum of yep, skin tones. Yep. Um, but they shared that like their teacher would do these dress code checks to the point where they would be asking these young women, young girls to open their blouses and reveal their bra strap to ensure that they were in compliance, which is a whole other level of fucked up. We're talking about minors, children, um, really um, imbalanced power dynamic there. Um, But from my personal experience, this really caught me off guard. And I'll preface this by saying I've not had any interactions with this person since. Make of that what you will. <laughs> oh, I'm making something. But yeah. <laughs> we had a networking conversation with this woman who is a doctor, has a PhD, um, not a medical doctor, but I mentioned that because I, th- I think there definitely is some element of privilege. Her mm-hmm. education level is part of that. Um, based on those facts, I might have even had some bias and assumptions about what this person might have to say and insights they might have to share. So we're talking about style. We're talking about personal branding, as normally I do with, you know, a networking conversation, just meeting this person for the first time. She and a team, I guess, had been tasked with a similar job to you, Ruby, is like overhauling their company dress code. How do they make these changes and kind of make sure that it covers everyone? And she was telling me not what she actually said to this person, but like her inner dialogue as she was having a conversation with a person that she had observed not wearing any supportive undergarments. So in her mind, this was an issue. This person is not wearing a bra and should be wearing a bra. I don't know exactly what she said to the person, but what she said to me was in her mind, she was thinking like, you probably would feel better if you wore a bra. And like, I mean, I don't know the person that she was talking about. I don't know their gender identity or anything like that. What I do know is what it feels like to wear a fucking bra. And the idea that I might feel better with one versus without one was preposterous for starters. But like that this third party could make a judgment call on what another person deems comfortable or uncomfortable for their own physical body. I mean, was stunning. I didn't have anything to say to that. It was like jaw drop. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think there's like bras, bra straps came up so many times today in the Instagram comments that clearly bras, uh, they're way too much of a part of dress codes and this idea of professionalism um, around like, whether or not you choose to wear them, the color you choose to wear, the kind of bra you choose to wear. I'm sure if you wore a push-up bra to work, someone would have a problem with that. I'm not even going to get into the birthday candle story that we heard on Instagram today from a listener. I'll just urge you to go read the post. Um, But 
there's a lot of uh, policing of breast ownership. I mean, it goes back to control, right? And people's own biases around that. Mm-hmm. So I thought we could, this is a great transition into talking about some of our stories from listeners. Um, and the first one is specifically about how women are, I don't know, expected to dress within business. Um, and from someone who actually began their career in the 80s, Ruby, you're going to read Pat's story. So Pat wrote to us about corporate dress codes, and I, I loved this message. It was so evocative of a time. <laughs> All right. I graduated from college and entered the corporate world as a computer programmer in 1985. I worked in a somewhat small town, so dress codes were not as strict as in big cities. Most offices had dress codes for all workers. I don't remember slacks being completely forbidden at my jobs, but it was implied I had to wear a skirt or dress to be taken seriously. I had one headhunter complain that the dress I had on was too feminine. Wearing florals and lace was not professional. The message was very clearly dress feminine, but not too feminine. In bigger corporations, in bigger cities, a suit was expected. The most stringent dress codes required men to wear a dark suit, white long-sleeved shirt, tie and black shoes for women the dress code was a skirted suit blouse that covered the collarbones pantyhose and closed-toed pumps the time of year did not change what was worn if a dress or skirt was not lined we needed a slip even with a lined skirt i normally wore a camisole under my blouse no one was to be able to see any outline of your bra keep in mind that as a programmer i never dealt with external customers i was only seen by other employees A big tech company in the 80s was EDS, owned by Ross Perot. He once got a lot of votes as a third-party candidate for president. Rumors in the computer world was their dress code rivaled that of IBM, and the employee orientation included hours of explaining how to dress properly for work. Those instructions included the proper undergarments a woman should wear. One place I worked had a seminar on dress for success. It was based on a book by the same name that came out in 1975, with a version for women released in 1977. Watch the movie Working Girl from 1988 to see how important the power suit was at the time. In 1990, I moved to Atlanta, Georgia to work for a major telecommunications company. There was no written dress code saying I could not wear slacks, but it was frowned upon. Part of the annual review documentation included if you dressed professionally. One of my female coworkers would make snide remarks when I wore slacks. She also made sure to tell me how she had enough suits to not repeat wearing one in a two-week period. She was my peer, not my supervisor. As far as the economic impact, suits required dry cleaning and pantyhose expenses could add up. Retirement advice at the time would point out how much money you would be saving on clothing once you retired. Another problem was the shoes women had to wear. It was frowned upon to wear flats. When I was 31 years old, I ended up at the podiatrist because of the problems my shoes were causing. I wasn't wearing high heels, just basic pumps with maybe one and a half inch heel. Now, almost 30 years later, I had to have surgery on a pinched nerve in my foot that started back then. Other women have horror stories of foot damage from the heels worn back in the day. Women in big cities who commuted via subway and bus were known to wear sneakers while commuting and carry their dress shoes with them. The corporation I currently work for doesn't have strict written dress codes, but there are still implied standards, especially the higher up you go on the ladder. I'm glad I work from home and can wear what I want. Wow. Made me really glad that I was not an adult in the 80s. This sounds terrible. 
Totally. I think especially the part about the shoes and the the foot damage and having to like get surgery later. I mean, it's especially when you think about like the expense of that, um, you know, like hopefully you have health insurance that can cover that surgery, (laughs) right? Right. Right? I mean, I think this is very true. Like so much of the burden of these dress codes, it goes beyond even financial, but it can affect your health. You know, someone today on Instagram was talking about how they actually, they developed a skin condition from wearing pantyhose every day to school. I know. I don't even want to know about that. The pantyhose are sweaty. They're like, they don't breathe. They're like, nylon or polyester like it's not a nice fabric no. rubbing tightly against your skin no i mean this this was interesting to me in many ways because some parts of this have changed certainly with time but not for everyone who works everywhere it does seem as though pantyhose has fallen out of favor like i think i remember being a small child and going to even like burlington coat factory with my grandma and there would be aisles of pantyhose and now you go into even macy's and it's a much smaller section right but like other parts of this still exist. And as we were ta- reading all of the Indeed stuff, there is still this gender binary within within work dress codes, right? Like even though Indeed was saying dresses or slacks or, you know, pantyhose or skirts or whatever, like it was very much like very clearly like this is for men and this is for women. And ultimately, in addition to it, this really just hurts everybody along the entire gender spectrum. Because very few people can actually dress in the way that makes them feel their best. Totally, totally. And I think when we were talking about like visibility of undergarments as well, I think <laughs> something we didn't touch on, we talked a lot about bras, um, but the line that Pat had in here about wearing slips under skirts, it made me think of like the VPL, like visible Oh my lines. gosh, yes. <laughs> and how that is also often such a thing that comes up in, in dress codes, mm-hmm. right? Um, for offices is like if there's even a suggestion that like you're wearing underwear which um, you're probably wearing underwear like get over it i know underwear. i know yeah i think yeah. oh well, she talked about the camisole too i mean so think of that like mm-hmm. if you were going to get dressed to go to work first you'd put on an underwear and a bra and your pantyhose then you would put on a slip and a camisole or maybe it would be a one-piece slip mm-hmm. so we got another layer there then a blouse or a dress then a blazer or a cardigan and this is year round. It's a lot of layers. I know. It's a lot and of it's a lot of money. And you're going to sweat. Oh. Yeah, you're going to sweat. And she mentioned getting those suits dry cleaned. Yeah. Like, that's incredibly expensive. Like, I rarely get stuff dry cleaned now because I don't wear nice stuff very often. <laughs> but, like, every time I do, I'm always, like, kind of sticker shy. I know. Like, I'm always like, wait, what? Like- well, and the other thing about dry cleaning, and I'm talking about this as a person who rarely gets dry cleaned on either, but men's shirts are far less expensive to dry clean than a woman's dress or blouse. Like there's like a mm. pink tax even associated with dry cleaning. Oh. And then you're having to wear all these, like I'm sure they weren't asking men to wear three layers of clothing to obscure their undergarments, you know? No. Um, and yeah, I mean, I just like a lot of this carries into now. And conversely, there are plenty of people who, you know, are maybe they're gender assigned at birth 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 was male or that is their gender expression who really don't want to wear a gray suit and a long sleeve white button up and a tie and dress shoes and trouser socks 365 days a year either so absolutely it's just i mean because i when i see men out in the city wearing suits in the summer i'm like how there was this guy who would always appear in downtown portland during the summer who i would see him 
he was like, he had the same commute as me. So I would see him on his bike wearing like a suit in like the fall, winter. And then in the summer, I would see him just wearing dress pants and no shirt to ride his bike to work. <laughs> Always made me laugh, but I was like, I get it. Like entirely shirtless? Entirely like shirtless. Oh but my like gosh. dress pants. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure <laughs> like so the shirt and jacket were in his briefcase or something. I don't know. Yeah. He also had a briefcase. Yeah. That's really funny. So, Did he roll the one pant leg? Yes. So of course. You have to. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And it was just it's so f- I would see him every day, like no shirt. Just riding to work and the at first i was like it was like off-putting because you just don't expect to see topless people at like eight in the morning just in general (laughs) and then i was like yeah i get it because i'm so sweaty when i get to work like i can't even imagine having all those layers but imagine if i had had to wear like all these other things just to hide the fact that i was wearing underwear which we're all wearing Mm -hmm. it's just yeah yeah maggie you actually had some thoughts about the impact of dress codes on trans and gender nonconforming individuals. Did you want to share those a little bit? Yeah, this this comes up with my clients a lot. Um, it's, I think, 50 to 60% of my clients identify as queer, somewhere on the LGBTQIA plus spectrum. So I work with a lot of trans folks, work with a lot of non-binary folks. Um, dress codes are a pain point, And I say I, I say pain intentionally, like forcing someone who is not male or female to dress as male or female is exhausting, frankly. I mean, it, it zaps mental energy. It zaps emotional mm-hmm. energy. Um, I, I think we all can acknowledge we have in previous episodes, like, there are more people that exist than just men and women. And yet when we see dress codes, they are largely categorized um, in alignment with this idea of a binary gender. So my thoughts are like, where does everyone else fit in? How are they supposed to navigate that? How do they comply Mm -hmm. with the quote unquote rules and still maintain their individual identity? It's not possible. In a lot of cases, um, I'm thinking about a client right now who is non-binary, but who is not out at work. Um, The dress code is part of that, part of their decision to not disclose that about themselves and their their work environment. So they work in a a male-dominated industry in a pretty fairly conservative um, type of role. They're like literally and figuratively masking on a daily basis there, you know, you mentioned the idea of a costume, like they're putting on a costume, they're putting on a, a face of a veneer embodying a character or persona that's not in alignment with who they are authentically. I mean, like I said, it, it zaps their energy. It takes away their focus. It can actually mm-hmm. be a distraction yeah. like while at the workplace, which no doubt has an impact on their ability to do their best work. Um, it drains their social battery, right? Uh, it also, this is something that we worked through as well. Like it leaves them exhausted at the end of the day. Like they don't have a lot of bandwidth left for things like social engagements and self care even. Um, so back to the, the quote from the article that was referenced a little bit earlier, like lower, paid employees having to choose between saving up and dressing up 
In this person's case, they're forced to choose between prioritizing their mental health and psychological safety. Like, that's one choice. Do I want to be safe? Do I want to have, you know, like, good, positive mental health experiences? Or do I want to be who I am at work? Like, they're mutually exclusive. They don't get to have both. It's really scary. It's also, you know, we've used these words throughout this conversation. It's dehumanizing and demoralizing. And frankly, like, yeah. I think people deserve better. Absolutely. Like, even if you're just like, I am a cold-hearted capitalist, right? Like, we'll take all of your care of people, about people out of the equation. Wouldn't you realize that forcing people to adhere to these policies really robs them of their productivity? Like, if your goal is to get the maximum amount of work out of your workers, why would you make them dress in a way that is uncomfortable physically and mentally and therefore probably does affect them from uh, prevent them from being as productive as you might want i don't know i feel like all the jobs i've had there's been a lot of hang up on like getting as much work out of every possible person totally i feel like it's kind of one of those arguments amanda where it's almost like the fat phobia thing too where it's like why wouldn't you just want to sell to like all these people that want to buy clothes but it's like (laughs) i don't know i feel like there is like this weird like level at which like prejudice like eclipses capitalism as like the number one goal it's like actually no it's actually more important that people like feel shitty and bad like what yeah (laughs) it's true i think you just hit it there because it's been something that i go round and round about where i'm like i just don't understand like so many uh so many companies out there will do everything they can to make a dime like just throwing ethics out the window in every possible way but then be like i'm not gonna dress fat people or i'm not gonna let people dress as themselves at work Mm -hmm. like just because i wonder if it's like I don't know, back to the power thing, right? It's like, I mean, it really yeah. sucks, but it's like, maybe the, like, for to serve those goals, right? To keep everybody, like, striving towards whatever, you know, the goal of capitalism is. It's like, the hierarchy, maybe, this is like, so dark, but like, maybe the hierarchy actually <laughs> is more important than profit, <laughs> like, at all costs. Wow. Like, maybe having, yeah, having people who... I don't know. It's like everybody's like, well, I don't want to be like that person. That person has it really rough. So like, I'll just stay in my corner over here. I don't don't know. Um, I mean, I think you might be onto something there, honestly. And that is very disturbing about human nature, right? I don't know if it's human nature, but it's like the capitalist reality that we're living in. Yes. And that power is like a number one priority for many not all people, maybe not even many people, but for some people, power is the ultimate prize. Mm-hmm. Like more than profit. Beyond money. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. That's pretty dark. you have any dark thoughts on that, Maggie, or maybe something less dark? <laughs> I, I mean, it, it resonates with me. Like, I, yeah, it, it makes sense. I think they're, they think, Ruby, you're definitely onto something. It's... It's not pleasant to digest. Like that's that's why we mm-hmm. have these conversations. They're hard. They're challenging. We're trying to, you know, um, disrupt and get people thinking critically about yeah. these things. So I guess there's my positive note. Like mission accomplished in a way. <laughs> like we're doing we're doing yeah. the thing. You know. 
We're doing the thing. Yeah. And I think like this is something that I have been thinking about a lot lately, and I'm sure we'll have more conversations about it in the future, which is this idea that, you know, yes, profit for many people, like money accumulation of wealth is a ticket to power, perhaps, and that it's not the stuff that they get along the way. It's the power. Mm. For other people, it is the stuff, right? Uh, And so you'll see like, some companies might lean into the profit side of it and maybe like show more concern for people in pursuit of profits. Um, but others are like, you know, I just like really wanted to be in charge of something, you know? Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's just like, it, yeah, the dress codes are just like another piece of this. You know, like we're talking about here, work uniforms, uh, dress codes, they're often intended to lend this air of professionalism, maybe even trustworthiness to employees in terms of like the way customers might view them. Um, but when we talk about school uniforms, we're really getting into more of kind of conformity for kids. Um, and, you know, uniforms are often argued as a way of leveling the playing field in schools, which is maybe not entirely true as well. Uh, I was doing a lot of reading about school uniforms and I was telling both of you before we started recording that really there are a lot of pieces about this all over the internet, but they really just fall into two different arguments. The people who are for uniforms, it always comes back to, and I know we touched on this in the last episode, this implication of safety, right? That we are keeping, I don't know, girls safe from sexual predators maybe? And we're keeping boys safe from being distracted by girls. I don't, it's like not great thinking. Uh, and the arguments yeah. against uniforms are like, hey, we're just getting kids ready to accept a life of no individuality, of conformity. Talking about this, um, it made me think of this other quote that I had bookmarked from um, from dress codes. It's very much about like how we teach children through dress codes and like what we're teaching them. Um, that really resonates. Um, And this also kind of has to do with what we were talking about before and like hierarchy and this concept of like punching down and there always kind of being someone to punch down to, um, (laughs) which I think kind of keeps us all distracted, right? From actually punching up, um, which is what would be a lot more productive. Uh, So this this quote from Richard Thompson Ford uh, says, modesty is by design, always a moving target. Any group of women, no matter how they are dressed, can and will be divided Mm -hmm. into the virtuous and the sinful, the good girls and the bad girls. And because women carry the guilt of Eve's original sin, moralists will always find some bad ones. When high schools enforce overly strict discriminatory dress codes, they're doing what schools know how to do best. They are teaching their students. They're teaching them that yoga pants aren't just casual attire. They're a sign of sin. They are teaching them, by example, to identify bad girls by what they wear and to treat those bad girls badly. Yep. So true. Uh, uh. (laughs) Even like think about how like like the Catholic school uniform for girls has been turned into like a sexy Halloween. Costume. I was gonna say, yeah, it's totally been fetishized. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Oh, totally. Uh, I mean, same thing with like mm-hmm. Japanese uh, girls' school uniforms as well. Like that's another one that's been fetishized. And I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, some of the articles yeah. I was reading that were sort of like pro school uniforms were saying, and I'm gonna tell you right now, this is not true that putting kids in uniforms 
or, you know, exercising a really strong dress code uh, degenders the student population. And I just feel like it actually uh, exacerbates the gender, the genderization. Is that even a word of kids? Um, because yeah. it seems like so much focus <sighs> is put it is put on girls, right? Uh, and so it's it's really about mm-hmm. I don't it's just policing bodies at this point. So I have I have a couple messages from listeners about their experiences with school and work uniforms. Um, the first one is from Carla. She said, I've worked two jobs with specific mandatory uniforms, both of which were food service. As a fat assigned female at birth person, the uniforms were poorly sized for me. At one job where I was given a single uniform shirt to keep, the largest available size, too tight in the hips and much too wide in the shoulders and sleeves. And I did not have access to a sewing machine at the time to tailor it, which is a skill that is not common for service workers regardless. At the other, there were backup shirts in the manager's office, but they were never in a size that would fit comfortably. It should be noted I am is what I am what is considered small fat, which is a subjective term, but the point is that anyone larger than me would only struggle more. Both uniform shirts were also made of the very non-breathable polyester and pilled quickly. I know this fabric way too well. The first job shirt was also in a color I would never wear that made me look sickly. I wonder legitimately how many people who were glad to have a level playing field of school uniforms or are or were thin. I am very glad I went to an art high school where I was not subject to stringent dress codes, much less uniforms. It was hard enough to be a fat teenager without being given the freedom to find my style for that fat body. I don't know that I would have found Lolita fashion in the 2000s otherwise, and that's a fashion community that has been core to my adult life. There are dress codes in the world that make sense. Requiring closed-toed shoes in a kitchen environment is a safety measure. Asking service employees to wear something that identifies them as an employee, such as a pin or an apron, lets customers know who can be asked for help. But I don't know that purely aesthetic dress codes, especially in non-service settings, serve anyone but the boss's feeling of control. I thought, like, you know, one thing that came up a lot in the Instagram conversation today was that thin students were not being sort of harassed about dress code as often as fat students. Um, same thing with violations for work dress code. And I'll tell you, like, I, I had a coworker who was really hung up on writing people up for dress code. And it was always people who were larger or people that she just didn't like. Like, I think dress code is just so subjective. Mm. And it's like you were saying, Ruby, it's a distraction. It's a distraction for everyone. Mm-hmm. For the people who are subject to the dress code and for the people who are enforcing it. Totally, right? Because it's not, it's like kind of like you were saying before about like, what about quality of work, right? Or like productivity. Yeah, or, or how like, good you perform in school. Exactly, I know. Like these, other, these other things that would actually be like maybe really helpful to evaluate. Um, and yeah. it, it does, it totally keeps people distracted. And I think, I think it keeps people who do have a bit of power who are in those like supervisory positions or the position of an enforcer. Um, of a dress code, it kind of keeps them punching down instead of yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, we have another message from Jenny. She says, "I grew up in a low-income family, and many of my clothes were purchased on sale or at places like Old Navy. I remember only purchasing what we could afford, which meant sometimes clothes did not fit perfectly. 
nor were they cut for young girls. Another story. Both in school and at church events, I remember being called out for revealing clothing. Perhaps a shirt was slightly too short because it had shrunk in the wash or I had chosen whatever was available to me. I remember these moments making me feel embarrassed about the clothes I owned, pieces I had otherwise enjoyed. I do not think there is enough discussion on the affordability of so-called acceptable clothing or the allowance for changing bodies that may not always keep up with your clothes. For schools that have low-income students, not only are uniforms a financial barrier, but dress codes can be prohibitive as well. And this is a really great one. I, I, I think just even, you know, when we talk about middle school or high school kids, you know, you're growing constantly, right? And it happens so fast. I remember specifically, I grew five inches over winter break. My mom didn't even believe it. I'd gotten all these clothes for Christmas from my grandma and they fit me on Christmas day when I tried them on. And when it was time to go back to school, they were all too small. Like, it just happened that fast. And, like, I remember being in bed every night. Like, I think my bones are breaking. Like, I was having major growing pains. And so now none of my clothes will be acceptable for dress code anymore. Because the shirts were too short. The skirts were too short. And what's a family supposed to do in that situation? And it's, like, penalizing someone for growing or their body changing. Yeah, even in adulthood, I think, like, I can see this playing out with like weight gain or weight Mm -hmm. loss or pregnancy or like all of these things that cause somebody's body to like change quickly um and I think it's so I don't know it's yeah it's just again it's kind of it's kind of like the body odor thing where it's like you don't know what's going on in somebody's life um and to just look at this like visual thing and be like your shirt's too short or like your skirt is showing too much leg it's just like it's like come on you know (laughs) cut this person a break and this is like like kids get sent home for this they like miss school because of this and their parents have to come get them who might be unable to leave work yeah and so it also it puts a financial burden on the family it puts the parents in risk of losing their jobs the kids literally miss getting an education. I have also had friends and coworkers who were sent home from work for dress code violations. And they it would be like be like, okay, well, I have to take a bus home. So I'm not gonna be back for like four hours, or I have to spend money on an Uber that I don't have. Yeah. You know, like these are all just it's almost like the dress codes are more destructive. Than they are constructive. Uh, yeah, understatement of the freaking century. Right, I know, <laughs> I know, I know. Thanks again to Maggie and Ruby for spending two more hours with me. We are actually recording part three this week because this has been such an in-depth series. I don't know why we thought we could fit it into one episode. We clearly could not. And we've been having such a blast working on this. I am super grateful for their time and expertise. And one way you can show your appreciation for them is giving them a follow on social media, checking out their work. Uh, All that stuff will be linked in the show notes. Okay, it's another triple-digit temperature day here in Austin. I think the last time I looked, it was 105. No big deal. Uh, We're in the midst of a heat wave that I feel is never going to end based on what I see on the Apple Weather app. But (laughs) this also means I need to stop recording pretty much right now because 
we have to turn off the air conditioning in order for me to record. And everyone gets hot, including all of the little fur coat wearing cats in the house right now. So with that, I'm going to say thank you for listening to another episode of Close Horse, written, researched, edited, all the things by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you like what you've been hearing, you can leave a rating, maybe even a review on Apple Podcasts. But most importantly, tell the people in your life. That's really how we get this information out there. It's how we get more people working on the same things that we do. This is how we make large social change happen. It's by telling our friends, our family, etc. Our cats, sure, get them involved too. If you'd like to support my work financially, you can learn more at patreon.com slash podcast, or you can check out the links in my Instagram profile. Thanks, as always, to my other half, Dustin Travis White, for the music and audio support and just being the best partner ever. All right. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.